You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for actually nothing this time, but references to uh, Foundation Season 2 airing now on Apple TV+. My name is Jason Concepcion. And I'm Rosie Knight. And welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Media Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this episode, Strike Watch. Then we're heading to previously on for an SDCC scene report and a little talk about that Barbenheimer box office. In The Hive mm-hmm. Mind is an interview with writer, producer, director, David S. Goya. And in The Nerd Out, some thoughts on Indiana Jones. Coming up. Strike watch. The historic double strike uh, continues uh, and some updates here. Dwayne Johnson, uh, who we have been tough on on this podcast, (laughs) uh, has uh, has come up big. Mm -hmm. We talked about uh, in the previous episode how important it is that the most Powerful and successful members of the WGA and SAG have been support have been in this fight uh, to support, you know, some of the the people who are on the lowest rungs of the ladder. And here is Dwayne Johnson, who has come through with a historic seven figure cool. donation to the SAG fund per Variety during the COVID nineteen pandemic. The SAG After Foundation worked to provide financial relief to many unions, 160,000 members via the Foundation's Emergency Financial Assistance Program, which will again be used uh, during the strike. And uh, just in recent days, it has been announced that Dwayne uh, made a a truly historic donation to the fund. Yeah, I think like you made a great point when we talked about the strike for the first time, which is like, this is the thing that makes us love comic books. It's like the people who are mm-hmm. most powerful, who have the power, looking after the people who don't. And in this reporting, there was something really interesting, which I think sums up the power of why a union like this, when it works like this, is really, really great. Because it was saying that Courtney B. Vance, who's the sag Foundation yes. president and executive director, Sid Wilson, actually wrote a letter to the 2,700 of the union's highest earning actors being like, look, we need money. Like, you're rich, give us money. And I'm like, that's exactly how it should be. And I love that Dwayne was the one who stepped up and was like, well, I'm giving seven figures, so who else wants to jump in? So I'm ready to see more rich people giving money to this. Because like you said, this is for the workers who are going to be in a situation where they're not going to make healthcare this year. The $26,000 that they need to make annually is not going to happen. And that could even be if they were still working, that might have happened anyway with the way residuals are. So it's really great that this is happening. I love to see it. 
George R. R. Martin, Who? our good friend George R. R. Martin has the weighed king. in on the strike. The king. <laughs> Uh, in his latest entry on his not a blog blog, he uh, has weighed in on the strike, calling it, quote, the most important of my lifetime. He continues, no one can be certain where we go from here, but I have a bad feeling that this strike will be long and bitter. It may get as bad as the infamous 1985 strike, though I hope not. Now, of course, George has been a uh, member of the WGA since the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Um And uh, he also continues with updates about House of the Dragon. Quote, House of the Dragon is shot mostly in London, a little bit in Wales and Spain and various other locations, which is why filming has continued. The actors are members of the British Union Equity, not SAG-AFTRA, and though Equity strongly supports their American cousins, uh, British law forbids them from staging a sympathy strike. If they walk, they have no protection for being fired, breach of contract, or even sued. That's Terrible. Terrible, terrible law. It's really strange, too, because England has a history, like, as George actually says in this blog, one of the major two yeah. parties is called the Labour Party, is built on the idea of protecting workers, but that has changed as the parties move more centrist. And it's really interesting because the subways in England, we call it the Tube, right? They have an yeah. incredibly powerful union, the transport workers, and that the fact that their union is so powerful has kind of been used to turn union sentiment in the public to be like, oh, well, they're getting it and you're not. When the big reminder that we all have about unions is if you see someone in a job and you see them getting good benefits and going on strike to get better pay and they get paid better than you, don't ask why they're getting that. Ask why you're not going on strike to get it, you know? So it's kind of that thing. Yeah, I was really, I was actually even shocked, even though I knew the union protections weren't strong. I didn't realize they were you can get fired and sued by HBO Max if you walk nuts. not strong. Absolutely. Absolutely nuts. Oh, um, also, wait, I just want to say as well, because this is a yeah. great, this is shows how scared the studios are right now. George R. R. Martin, his overall deal with HBO was suspended That's on right. June 1st, which they're doing with a lot of people, but you don't expect him to be one of them. I think they're doing it. I will say it, it seems like they're doing it with everybody. They're yeah. taking the opportunity to not pay people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a um, there's a significant calendar uh, date coming up in August sometime, which is the—I'm uh, I, I, not sure of the exact day, but uh, it will be the point at which contractually the studios have the opportunity to cancel some overall deals completely Wow! Uh, by claiming force majeure. This, ha- this happened last time, and you would expect— them to do it this time. You know, one of the yeah. talking points you hear is, oh, the studio actually likes this early part of the strike because they want to save money. They want to mm-hmm. get rid of deals that aren't performing. I'm sure George will not be among those who are, <laughs> yeah. whose deals are canceled. But I, yeah, I think everybody is not, is everybody on an overall is not, yeah, is that not seeing cutting. that check clear. And some of them may be, uh, may be done away with in the coming weeks. Um, SAG approval. SAG has granted approval for 39 productions to continue during the strike, including two films from the uh, the the artistic darling studio A24. Uh, the list includes two projects from A24's uh, the uh, independent production company. Uh, the titles are Mother Mary, starring Anne Hathaway and Michaela Cole, and Death of a Unicorn, starring Paul Rudd and Jenny Ortega. Um, so basically. Uh, SAG has kind of signaled that uh, indie projects that aren't, you know, they were uh, 
they're going to like forensically look through their accounting. But anybody that's not uh, taking money from the studios and not is not going to be distributed by any of the major players is truly an indie movie. And as in the case with A24, studios who agree tacitly to the WGA and SAG's demands and says, we'll, we'll go by we'll go by what your mm-hmm. proposals are now. We'll just willingly do that, are allowed to continue shooting. So if A24, question is, if A24 can do it, why can't the rest of them? Yeah. Uh, we'll see where this goes. Yeah, what's, what's, the, have you, you've been on the picket line, obviously. What's the feeling yeah. been on this? Because I've seen it's been quite controversial. Some people are like, yeah, A24 are doing it. That's amazing. But some people are also like, well, this is giving the biggest name actors paid work when people are out on strike who are kind of the <laughs> lowest rung workers who are really need that money. I, it, it it's a little bit of a wait and see. I mm. think people, I think everybody understands the idea, which is one support the uh, the independent um, producers out there, truly independent film. Number one, which is just a good thing to do, and number two, try and create these divisions by saying, "Hey, if you if you agree to our." proposals we can start mm-hmm. filming right away like who wants to who else wants to come in you know that's how the um oh, that, yeah notably the the agency campaign from a few years ago which i won't delve into but part of how that eventually resolved is uh you know the studios one by one saying okay fine we'll work with you mm-hmm. we'll work with you we're worth if we and so if they can peel off some of the members of the amptp that's all for the good mm-hmm. that said i think that there is there's also some, okay, well, let's see how this goes, because I thought the idea was we're not working and we're mm-hmm. not working. So we'll see. Yeah. The AMPTP released a 23-page document a few days ago. We're recording this on uh, July 25th. They, re- they released uh, this document on July 21st, and it had uh, their version of the, I guess, last few negotiation rounds with SAG-AFTRA, uh, their proposals and counterproposals. Uh, you can find that uh, in various places, but the Hollywood Reporter had a good write-up of it. But there's one thing that I, I wanted to – so one of the things that, of course, has been a sticking point is the uh, the issue of revenue sharing, uh, you know, a.k.a. residuals, which is how many writers and actors, you know, keep the lights on when they're not, you know, in the months often, you know – significant amount of months between jobs and the APTP's position is that uh, they don't want to pay them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Uh, for, <laughs> they don't want to pay those anymore. Uh, the, you know, they say, well, the business has changed. Uh, you know, tech has come in, uh, Netflix, Apple and Amazon, and they have different cultures. Their culture is based on secrecy. They don't want to <laughs> give up the streaming numbers. Any kind of revenue sharing, uh, sharing in the success of a project would necessarily involve the sharing of the viewership numbers. And they don't want to do that. So in, in their kind of counter to SAG's revenue sharing proposal, uh, the AMPTP statement says... Quote, the union is proposing that performers share in the rewards of a successful show without bearing any of the risk. The union proposes to share in success, but not in failure. That is not sharing. One, this is the way it's been done in the past. Yes, of course. Like the, the, the actors are not putting up their own money and mortgaging their houses so that, like, you know, the project can go through. Um, that said, throughout the entire history of TV, this is 
This is basically how it's been done. It's mm-hmm. been understood. Yes, of course, the studios are making the capital investment, but anything that succeeds beyond, you know, a certain set point, then it's time to share in the wealth. And the uh, AMPTP now says, well, that's the old thinking. We're not going to do that anymore. I, I, I don't think that the, the unions should accept that. But number two, this idea that because the, the actors are not taking on a form of like scaled capital risk mm-hmm. is actually completely wrongheaded. Uh, first of all, a lot of this is a fight on, on, for actors and writers to be able to, one, make their year, which has been which is something that's gotten harder and harder. Making your year essentially means making enough money through the guild, through guild work, to qualify for health insurance. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody who has struggled to figure out, like, where's my health insurance coming from? How am I going to get it? Can I keep it? What am I going to do? Understands that, like, living in a world in which, one, you're trying to make it as either an actor or a writer, and two, trying to figure out, okay, do I need to get some kind of straight job in order to get benefits— you're taking a risk in your life mm-hmm. just going out of the house without health insurance yep. and trying to get it. One. Two, the amount of a, – a, a large part of this struggle is about the amount of free work that goes on in this industry, whether it's actors spending their own money and time to send in a self-tape, which, uh, you know, part of the uh, the complaints that actors have is these self-tapes are becoming more and more intricate with, like, lighting and, like, scenes. And now it's like not everybody has the resources to do this. All of which is to say actors and writers take on significant risk. It's not capital risk in the same way that the, the studios do, but they take on plenty mm-hmm. of risk. And they should absolutely share in the success of a project when it succeeds. Yeah, completely. And also, I mean, that you talk about self-tapes. I also saw that there's been a movement for people to get paid for auditions because legally and contractually, you are supposed to be paid for They're an audition. They're supposed to already. But that hasn't been happening for a really long time. So even these base protections that you would hope these actors are getting for this alleged small investment of time that they're giving, the studios haven't been paying them anyway. That's right. Uh, well, uh, the strike continues. Um, and we'll be covering it here on X Revision. Up next, previously on. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It was SDCC, just gone. Our first SDCC since Twilight took over Hall H and invented Hall H culture, that there hasn't <laughs> been a major studio presence inside the convention. Because I will say, when you go to San Diego, they always have activations. They have yeah. things that people can do without tickets. You can sign up online. And there were still a few of those, I believe, FX turned up. I believe Hulu mm-hmm. turned up with that kind of stuff. But inside, 
There were no major Hall H panels. There was no DC movies. There were no Marvel movies. There weren't even any big TV panels aside from a couple of little premieres where there wasn't any talent apart from maybe a director who was able to turn up. But I have to say, San Diego was bumping. It was incredibly busy. Uh, Tiffany Babb, who's an incredible pop culture journalist and comic book journalist at Popverse, did a great Mm write-up about how she spoke to lots of different retailers. Yeah, I read that. It was great. Like Silver Sprocket, one of our favorite indie publishers, they said they had their biggest preview night ever. And preview night's usually a pretty quiet night, mostly for industry folks. I spoke to multiple different exhibitors who said it was the biggest year they'd had quirk books was also quoted in pop first yeah so basically what happened Funk, funko i believe oh had of a course historic also SCD- the marvel CDs. booth they had a, they yeah. had like a marvel merch booth there that apparently did really really well basically what happened was because people were not in the hall h queue lines and there were not six thousand people in hall h, <laughs> yeah, right. they were on the show floor and yeah. you know what i have to say they were also in the panel rooms i did three panels all of which were busier than most panels I've ever done. But the one that really stuck out to me, and I think this is representative of a lot of people's experience, I did a panel with Webtoon called A Golden Age for Women in Comics. And the idea is was to highlight that women have always been making comics, but they've just been erased from the narrative. And now, thanks to Webtoon, thanks to incredible indie publishers like Black Jose Press, the publisher Jimmy LaRouza was on the panel, women are being recognized for making comics, even though they've always been here. That is the kind of panel I've done at San Diego before about like disability or about different aspects of representation. And you get an eager crowd, but not a necessarily packed room, right? Those rooms can hold like two, 300 people. Our Golden Age of Women in Comics panel, which did feature Rachel Smythe, who makes Laura Olympus, who is arguably one mm-hmm. of the most famous cartoonists in the world. So I'm giving her credit for how many people came as well. But that was a one-in, one-out panel. It was standing room only, and they had a queue outside to let people in. And I started to hear the other people. There was a queer horror panel, and that was the same thing, where they had a queue outside. So what happened with Hall H not being there is it drove people into the show floor. It drove people into the convention center. And the coolest thing is people just were excited. The vibes were great. I I didn't see anyone who was disappointed or who wasn't prepared for the fact this was going to be comics focused. And it was just a really wonderful experience. Also, I will say there was a lot of great strike support. There was lots of cosplayers with strike signs. Uh, Actually, like, Duncan Crabtree Island came on Saturday to speak on a panel about AI and voice acting and kind of advocate for the voice actors. And there were people giving, I know Danny Fernandez, one of our friends of the pod, she was giving out a lot of strike pins. And one of the coolest things was they had these signs that were like SAG signs and they said, support the strike, carry this sign. And people would just hand them off to each other. So you'd see like Deadpool carrying it and you'd see, and it really (laughs) kind of opened my eyes to the fact, we obviously care about this stuff like deeply, not just because we're involved in it, but because it's something that we care about. We care about it because we love comics. We care about it because we love TV and movies. We want people to get paid. I don't think the studios realize how widespread that mentality is. That you can have a kid in a comics-accurate Deadpool cosplay because there was a lot of comic-accurate cosplay because people didn't want to do movie cosplay because they felt like they were supporting Strux Studios. It was really heartening not only to see the love for comics but also to see people recognizing that they understood why this SDCC was different. It was really cool. And I would say, if I was in charge of SDCC, 
I'd be having very different meetings with the studios next year. Like, how can you help yeah. us? If you want this platform, we don't need it. But if you want the platform of being on Hall H, how much are you going to invest in the convention? How much can we use this your resources to make this an even better place for comics, for the museum, for artists who can't afford an artist alley table. Because the truth is, Hall H not being there did not impact how that show was. Aside from positively for smaller press and artist alley people who felt like Mm -hmm. they, especially by the end of the weekend, I heard that Saturday and Sunday, it was almost like on the first two days, folks were walking around kind of being like, okay, I've never really been on the show floor. What am I going to buy? Like budgeting it out like you kind of do. And apparently Saturday and Sunday, those sales just went absolutely crazy. That's that's great. That's great. And it's, you know, it's interesting now, I'm kind of reflecting on the fact that certainly in the Hall H era, Mm -hmm. I have never, (laughs) never once heard someone Talk about the kind of Hall H culture and mm-hmm. the immense lines and what it takes to get in there with any kind of warmth. No, you know it's people like people don't want to queue out there for two nights. It, <laughs> yeah, it is only complaints about the whole rigmarole of of getting through that. And it's nice to see that there was a, almost like a turn the clock back mm-hmm. moment of uh, this. The energy and the community is still here. It's not going anywhere. And to your point, uh, maybe there is a conversation about like what the relationship mm-hmm. it will be in the future between the, the studios and Comic-Con. And hopefully that conversation can make the experience of Comic-Con kind of just better. Yeah, and I you make a great point because I think something that was really special, so Dorian Parks, who's really great, who's a, a host and a kind of journalist in the same space as us, he moderated the Spider-Man 2 panel, which was about the video game, right? But what was really interesting was so many, it was in Hall H and so many people who would never have got to experience Hall H got to experience it because that wasn't necessarily yeah. the two-day wait. So I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. And the thing that made me the happiest was that my worst case scenario was like, People won't come or they will come and they'll be really mad and it will affect the people who've invested thousands of dollars who are indie cartoonists who know that this is the time that they can make, they can make the bag that weekend. That can be the one show you do that really makes you money. And it turns out it was the complete opposite. And it was just an absolute delight to be there. And because people were on the show floor and there weren't Hall H lines, San Diego was actually pretty chill to walk around. So, yeah, it was was overall just wonderful. And I'm hoping that we learn a lot of great lessons and kind of see them come into play more as we go ahead. Up next, uh, let's quickly talk about the (laughs) insane Barbenheimer weekend. Wild. Okay, so Barbenheimer weekend has come and gone. Uh, Barbie is currently at 160 plus million and climbing. Um, Oppenheimer as well is uh, around 80 million ish and climbing. Uh, both movies are handily beating their projections, and uh, the movies are back, folks. Here's a. My manager, Kenny, who you know, has been endlessly roasting me because I was not able to get into either movie. <laughs> I was not – I try. I really try. My usually my usual move is Friday morning or Saturday or Sunday morning, I'll take in a, a matinee yeah, nice for the, matinee. whatever the new movie. Nostalgia. Nice matinee. Wonderful matinee for whatever the new movie is. Um, I tried every movie time for mm-hmm. both movies 
and there was like nothing except for like the front row seats at an IMAX where you're sitting basically under the screen. And you can see one foot of the screen. And you're, you're, <laughs> my fucking vertebrae will snap in half because like my head is completely like looking up at the top of the screen. And I just couldn't do it. Um, but two huge movies, obviously a marketing bonanza. And one of those things, a, a counter-programming coup in which both projects have been burnished by this entire scheme, part of which is just like the overall pettiness of, of Warner Brothers. So you mm-hmm. know, one of the things that has happened in, in the past that led up to this is uh, Christopher Nolan among many filmmakers, was upset with Warner Brothers' move to take movies out of theaters, only giving them a short run in theaters, and then put them right on Max, right? He's a lover of movies. He wants movies to be seen in the movie theater, and he didn't like that. So he left his longtime home, Warner Brothers. And as a kind of like pettiness, I guess, they were like, oh, yeah, well, we're going to have our movie – a Barbie open opposite Oppenheimer when you do Oppenheimer at your new a new place. And guess what happened? Both movies are succeeding through this mm-hmm. because the Barbenheimer phenomenon has become a thing. Yeah, I mean, it's. I read a really interesting interview with like the head of global marketing from Warner Brothers, and it used some terms I'd never really heard of. So there's like, you know, obviously paid advertising, right? Which is paid marketing, yeah. which. I have to say Warner Brothers did an unbelievable job of like they did the weirdest coolest shit like the the they did an architectural digest video tour of the Malibu dream house yeah. like Barbie dream house like yeah. they just did really weird stuff that kind of hit in the shit post era of the internet that we're really in yeah. but he also talked about earned marketing and that's essentially what Barbenheimer comes under the umbrella yeah. of which is an organic internet like fun, like people getting excited. And I mean, this is one of those wild moments where like neither of the studios saw this coming. Warner Brothers had Barbie tracking. They had Barbie tracking at 75 mil and Oppenheimer was tracking for Universal at like 50 mil. 50, These movies made $500 million globally over this weekend, half a billion dollars. That doesn't exist without all the people online who made memes it doesn't exist with people like without people like super yucky making t-shirts in the barbie font that say do you guys ever think about dying it doesn't <laughs> exist without the incredible artists who made barbenheimer mashup posters like one of our discord uh fans and friends like rodrigo he runs this film magazine called layered butter and they did a barbenheimer poster that went totally viral and it is now basically used as almost as if it was an original, official piece of art that both the studios made. They didn't. Neither of them could ever have imagined that these two ridiculously juxtaposed movies would create this fandom. But I also think that that comes from Nolan being an author, Gerwig being an author, and this kind of hilarious dichotomy between like this serious, talky (laughs) three-hour biopic, which by the way should never have been able to make 80 million. That's a superhero movie opening weekend. It's it's truly insane. And then Barbie, which should be uh, a flop that later finds a cult following kind of like, you know, Gem and the, you know, Gem and the Hologram, so that has found less of a cult following, but something like Josie <laughs> and the Pussycats, right? Like, that's yeah. kind of where people expected Barbie to land. So, Barbie is now the biggest opening weekend of the year, beating Super Mario, which, by the way, had a ridiculous opening weekend. I mean, yeah. Also, 
be in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Also now, the biggest opening weekend ever for a female director, beating both Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel, so beating two superhero movies. Also, in the international box office, Barbie almost made $200 million over this weekend. This, and I have yet to see Barbie because try seeing that in San Diego on SDCC <laughs> yeah. weekend. People were not busy at SDCC. And today... Obviously, bargain day at AMC. Good tip there. If you want to save some money, $7 to a movie. I looked, going with friends from who work in the OC, and I looked from every theater from like Irvine down to LA, and it was almost impossible to find a ticket that was not in the front like three rows. Like this movie's going to keep making money. The drop for Barbie from Saturday to Sunday was 9% which is wow. basically unheard of. And Oppenheimer's was also really low by my understanding. So I think that the Barbenheimer weekend is over, but the Barbenheimer summer is not over. Like, sorry to the Haunted Mansion, but you're not touching either of these movies this weekend. You know, you just know that right now there <laughs> is an entire floor of people yep. who work for like Apple Studios Marketing who are trying to figure out who... Napoleon's Barbie is. Exactly. Like, no, this we, is why I'm saying, we do dude, how <laughs> upset do you think every studio is right now that they can't be on the phone to like every screenwriter and every director yeah. being like, so do you want to do like street sharks? Is it like, the yeah, yeah. can you think of like an A24 take on like street sharks? Those meetings would be happening if the strike was not on. And I know they're all sitting there stewing in their juices, writing things like gritty Polly Pocket. Like, trying yeah, to yeah. find ways that they can do this. I love that. What is Napoleon's we, Barbie? Yeah, I am can we, ready. <laughs> can we rush an indie Carmen Sandiego exactly. movie she to the like theaters in time for Napoleon? She's go, yeah. You know, I feel like those conversations are happening. And, I, you know, this is one of those things where the real truth is, is there really a lesson here? It's hard to know because counter-programming has always yeah. worked. This is organic. You can't really replicate it. But the lesson that studios are going to learn is like toy movies, but with like an auteur director. And yeah, also like, I guess biopics can make a lot of money now if they're programmed against something like that. So yeah, I did see, I don't think it was a coincidence that yesterday they announced that Ryan Reynolds is rebooting Biker Mice from Mars. So I yeah. think we're going to see that what we've been seeing is the IP rush for comics. I think we're going to see that moving back to toys, which it hasn't been for quite a long time. So that'll be interesting. I'm sure we're going to get many terrible toy movies, but maybe some good ones too. Yeah, I mean, listen, Transformers is out here. G.I. Joe has been out here. Yeah. Lego has been out here. Uh, the toy movies have been doing well. It's, it'll be interesting but to see what's next. But I can't, this is the first one that's come This close. is a culture movie. Yeah. It's this moved is, the culture. This is in the top fourth opening weekend of all time, only beaten by The Force Awakens, Infinity War, and Endgame. So now that's toys are in that. They're in that <laughs> superhero movie space. And it beat Transformers Dark of the Moon as the biggest movie based on a toy. So yeah, toy movies are back, baby, for better or for worse. Up next, our interview with David S. Goyer. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise. 
the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to The Hive Mind, where we explore topics with an expert guest. Today, we're thrilled to welcome writer, showrunner, and director David Escoya to discuss his career, creative process, and foundation. David, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I'm, I'm a fan, and I was happy to return the favor because you co-host that other podcast you and I do. <laughs> and, and it was a delight to do it. Yeah. Um, so how is your summer going? Well, uh, uh, you know, I was I was filming something and uh, yeah. we got shut down because of uh, SAG and I was over in Europe and we got shut down early Saturday morning and then I, I, I booked a flight on my phone right there and went back to my hotel and packed and got on a plane about five hours later and then I picketed in LA yesterday in 95 degree nice. heat, but I'm look, it's the, it's a crazy once in a lifetime situation yeah. and completely justifiable. Um, but I'm also, you know, after spending the bulk of my last four years over in Europe, I'm, I'm really grateful to have this time with my family and, and not yeah. during a pandemic. So that's the silver lining for, for me. Yeah. Tell it. Could you tell us about that? The, the obviously this this the strike is a is another bit of complexity and challenge on top of everything um, that's and it impacts everyone industry wide. But like what the show that you were making is so grand and complicated. You just mentioned that you were in Europe for a lot of the last couple of years. Tell us about the, some of the challenges that you went through producing that. I mean it. Foundation's the most complicated project I've ever worked on. Uh, and we don't, we don't film it in, in sort of a volume of VFX box, like some of the shows out there. We film more than half the show on location. Um, in season one filmed in six different countries. I think season two filmed in five different countries. Uh, we do what we call cross-boarding, meaning like every, the schedule gets, we don't film one episode and then another, everything gets put in a blender. It's incredibly difficult and it would have been difficult even without a pandemic mm. and multiple strikes, but it's, it's just, we just keep, you know, we, we had the initial lockdown and, and then season two lockdown wasn't happening, but we actually had many more delays because of COVID than in season one, because in season one, everyone was in a bubble, so-called bubble. Mm. We, would, we would take right. over hotels and we would charter flights. And, and um, it's just, it's just like the hits keep coming and coming and coming and coming. <laughs> and it's, it's also, it's crazy because it's the show's so wildly ambitious and, and I'm so grateful to have made the first two seasons, but like all of the changes, the seismic changes that are happening to our industry 
are like, I worry they're the very things that will make a show like ours not possible anymore. So who knows, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that, from basically from the very inception of adapting foundation, you're in a situation where it's going to be a challenge because there's many oh, yeah. things over the years that have been called unfilmable. Sure. But this is probably like one of the most... Unfilmable, unfilmable, unfilmable things. Unfilmable yeah. things. <laughs> yeah. So like, what was the origin of you wanting to adapt it or what was your origin with Asimov's foundation and kind of how this came to become a TV show? Okay. Uh, I'll answer that, but I realized I, I should qualify. I'm speaking to you in the capacity as a director and Thank not, you. Right, and, yes, right, and of course. because I've directed yeah. episodes two and three of the show and not only am I allowed to promote in that capacity, I've been encouraged to promote by, one of the two guilds I'm uh, involved in. But um, what was it like? I mean, I, I was given the book by my ne'er-do-well father when uh, he was 13, or I was 13, not him, he was 13. He said, this is the greatest science fiction book of all time. You should read it. And I, I didn't read it because I was angry at him. And I think I read it in my, 20, <laughs> my 20s and I got some of it, didn't understand what the big deal was, reread it in my 30s. And then... Over the years, because for, for the first two decades of my career, I was writing almost exclusively features. I was offered the opportunity to adapt it a couple of times, uh, once with Warner Brothers and once with Sony. And even then, I just thought, oh, there's people are thinking, oh, we want to do a trilogy of films. And I just didn't think it was possible to to condense all of that. It's anthological in nature. A lot of the stuff's been strip mined you know, by Star Wars and Dune and yeah. how do you make it new again? And and um, so I said no a couple of times. And over the years, just like everyone, I would hear, oh, this person or that person is trying to adapt it. And also, I'm not sure I was a sophisticated enough writer to have adapted it earlier on in my career. But then maybe, I don't know, five years ago, streaming had started and people were suddenly tackling these big novelistic projects and mm. saying, okay, now you've got at least 10 hours or 20 or 30. And then it seemed like it might be possible. And, and I'd had enough weighty adaptations under my belt to be crazy enough to try. But what was crazy was I was, I was wading into adapting foundation at the same time I was wading into adapting Sandman. But another famously yeah, yeah, like unfilmable yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just thought it was just so, so surreal. And I'd flirted with Sandman for more than a decade as well. And it was they both sort of came together at the exact same time. And then it just was a race. I was meant to run either one of them. And it was just a race as to which one was going to be greenlit first. And Foundation was. So then after working on the initial adaptation, um, with Neil and then Alan Heinberg, Alan Heinberg took over that. But um, I don't know, did that answer your question? I got lost in my yeah, answer. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, I heard you, Rosie, describe me as a friend of the pod uh, on one of your uh, podcasts the other day. And, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be considered a friend of the pod, although you and I have never spoken prior to this. So You know what? Jason's friends, my friends, pod uh, friends. Right. <laughs> um. You mentioned that you didn't think that maybe you were a sophisticated enough writer yeah. uh, when you first. Some people would argue I'm still like not. That. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what do you what what is it about your 
writing evolution that you think is it made you able to take on that project at that particular time? What had changed? What had you learned? I think that, um, you know, I guess over my career, I started to become the sort of one of the go-to guys to adapt, to take on like weighty IP or complicated IP. And, and I just remember, I think one of the things that changed was when Chris Nolan and I were working on Batman Begins and we, we had this very methodical approach to Batman in which we would try to, we would just, before we even came up with a story, we spent weeks just talking about what makes Batman, Batman. And so writing lists of the things that we felt were like essential Batman tropes and then things that don't make Batman, Batman. And then this was crazy at the time, but we flew to New York and we met with all the editors of DC for three days and we asked them the same questions. And, and they said no one in all the decades prior to that had ever even asked DC mm-hmm. what made Batman, Batman. And we just thought it was a no brainer to do it. And so, so then we, before we even came up with the story, we just thought, okay, have, have we identified the core DNA of this thing? Do we have it right? And the editors at DC, um, you know, Paul Levitz and people like that at the time, um, even Neil Adams, uh, who we talked to, uh, felt that we um, had gotten it right. And then we started building our story. Mm. And so what's amazing to me is how many people don't do that. And so that is an approach that I've just applied then to everything I've worked on over the last two decades is just try to figure out can I, you know, what makes this thing unique? And can I tell a story that doesn't betray those elements? Um, and it sounds simple, but but it's amazing. You know, I've talked about this before, but like I had this feeling like with a lot of superhero adaptations that they'll think about, okay, what villain are we going to use? And then build a story around it as opposed to figuring out what makes, you know, uh, the, you know, superhero X, superhero X, and then figuring out what's the right villain to tell that story. So Chris and I did not decide we were going to start with Raja Ghul or the Scarecrow. We were going to tell this story about um, Batman overcoming his fears or Bruce Wayne overcoming his fears and having all these daddy issues. And so fear led to Scarecrow <laughs> and daddy issues led to Raja Ghul. It was one, you know, one of the, one of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. One yeah, of the only cool. villains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was like, more parental. And so the, I guess the approach was just very holistic in that way. And we mm. applied the same things to Sandman. And in the case of Sandman, we had Gaiman with us and, and Alan and I said, we spent like three or four days just saying, okay, Neil, what makes Sandman Sandman? What do you think? Um, mm. And I did something yeah. similar with Robin Asimov, uh, Isaac's daughter on foundation. Yeah, it's. I was going to ask, that's really interesting that you brought that up because I feel like often as comic book fans, people who love this stuff, comics have been seen since, you know, they first, in the 1800s when it was strip comics or whatever, sure. to, you know, the Wortham trials. They're seen as like lowbrow and yeah. disposable, yeah. they're for kids, you know, that's yeah. still something yeah. people see. So it's kind of incredible to hear you talking about how adapting comics taught you how to adapt these kind of huge epic sci-fi sh- stories for prestige were there any other kind of things that you learned from 
adapting so many superhero stories and comic books that helped you when it came to adapting something like this that takes place over thousands of years, the way that comics <laughs> kind of have that modern mythology of going over many, many centuries? Do you think, yeah, I do think that it's funny if, if you go to classic comic book storytelling, right? I think comic books are the closest to serialized TV storytelling is almost any other yeah. art form, right? Yeah. Because you've got the individual episodes, which are akin to the individual issues. And then you've got these arcs, which would be akin to like the season. And then you've got like the super arc, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and so because I, I spent so much time reading comics as a kid, that's, that's just the way structurally I think. So with regards to Sandman and Foundation, we definitely think about okay, this is a serialized story, but is each episode, can each episode be a complete meal? And then how does it fit within the season? And is there a beginning and middle and end to the season? And then how does it fit with the super story? Um, and th that's definitely something I, I picked up from, you know, Denny O'Neill or Chris Claremont or, you know, <laughs> yeah. Frank Miller or someone like that. Um, can I ask you about the... the there, you can ask me ago, anything, Jason. We'll see whether or not I, yeah, 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 yeah. I answer. Well, since we're on the subject of comics, a few years ago, uh, a letter that you wrote to editor and writer at Marvel, Mark Grunwald, who's then in charge of the Captain America book, uh, emerged. And it was you basically uh, giving notes on a particular storyline and the challenges the character faced in that particular era, the mid 80s, mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, Reagan in the White House. Um, di did you always take comics that seriously? And were you, was it in your mind to be a writer at that point? Because surely, I mean, it's not very many people write a like 700 word uh, letter to the editor to, uh, to Marvel Comics. The, yes and yes to, to both those <laughs> questions. I mean, I also have a letter in the Alan Moore run of Swamp Thing, American Gothic. Which yeah, I'm very best. proud of, you know. The best yeah, one. yeah. In yeah. which I incorrectly guessed at what was behind, all, like all the various sub monsters that were <laughs> going after something. But yeah, I, I, I've probably got about. Uh, I, mean, I will say this: every letter I wrote got printed. I probably have about seven letters. Wow! Wow! Printed. That's and, a solid run. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, but I was I was you know growing up in Michigan, going to my local comic book store and and I I you know I don't know from the time I was about fourth or fifth grade I thought about you know write becoming a comic book writer first and foremost mm -hmm. and uh, the idea that I would become a screenwriter was just crazy we didn't know anything anyone in Hollywood yeah. but a comic writer felt like attainable possibly mm -hmm. and yeah I revered them I just thought. Because I was coming up in the, you know, Teen Titans when that you know, when that started, yeah. and I was I was reading, you know, Byrne and Claremont's uh, Uncanny X Men while wow. that arc was happening, like in real time, and yeah. it was when it was uh, <laughs> I think it was bi monthly, and um, I, that was just blowing my mind. That was that was one of the first ones that really blew my mind was what was happening with, yeah. uh, um, yeah. with X Men. And I, I just thought it was amazing. Yeah, well, I will say 
there is a grand tradition. One of my favorite things, I have a lot of back issues. And one of my favorite things to do is read the letters page because you actually see a lot of letters from people who would go on to write comics. For sure. So, Martin, yeah. and you oh, see yeah, a lot yeah, of notables. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. You can go in there and you'll find letters from like, Big name people, and you're totally. like, oh, okay, you were the fan. So, what was yeah. it like to then go from being one of those fans and then continue that tradition of actually getting to write comics? Well, the funny thing is, I wrote movies before I wrote comics. Like a right? lot of people is write comics, yeah, yeah, and they go to write. <laughs> um, and then I was so I I had already, you know, was making a healthy living. I'd already had Blade come out, mm-hmm. and and then. Um, Randomly, I was introduced to James Robinson, who was uh, on the Starman run at the time. Mm-hmm. And and we met and we had dinner one night and he confessed to me that he had writer's block and he was trying to figure out where to go and what to do. And, and I, I started pitching some ideas for him and he said, that's a really good idea. Do you mind if I use that? I said, no, go ahead. And then we had dinner a couple weeks later and he said, you got any more ideas? And then he just said, do you want to start co-plotting it with me? Because I am I feel bad I'm using so many of these ideas. And <laughs> and so then I did, and I co-plotted it with him for a while. And, and then he said, hey, um, DC wants to revive the Justice Society. Do you want to just co-write it with me? And I said, sure, that sounds great. And the irony there was... James bailed in the second issue. His name is still yeah. on on like, <laughs> like five more issues, but he bailed. He had this sort of crisis of conscience. And I, I literally, I'd only written like two full scripts and DC said, well, do you want to keep writing? We like it. And I said, sure, <laughs> sure, but I need help. And so here's what's really crazy at the time was I was also friendly with Jeff Johns who had just written, I think he was still like Richard Donner's assistant. And had mm-hmm. just wow. written, like, I don't even know if Stargirl had come out, but he'd, like, written a proposal for something. And I said, hey, Jeff, do you want to write this uh, with me? And DC wouldn't, I had to, like, really pressure them to approve him wow. to co-write. you changed the course yeah, yeah. of DC yeah. Comics. Yeah. But, yeah. But, really he, but, <laughs> but Jeff started on JSA with me as of, like, the second issue. Mm-hmm. And, and then, obviously, he became Jeff Johns, you know, with a capital G and a capital J, but it, I backed into comics in, you know, just a really weird way. And then, you know, we kept it up for about four years and, um, and then it became too unwieldy for me, but that was, Mm. I loved doing it. I would still go back and write comics at some point. I really, really enjoyed doing it. I didn't do the Marvel method though. We wrote full scripts. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Better to do it the full script way. (laughs) Um, so how did you break into screenwriting then? I, you know, I remember, I've told you this story before, but in 98, I worked in a movie theater. So I said every single movie that came out in 98, every single movie that came out that year, I saw in the theaters, including Blade and Dark City, two, two Which, yeah, movies came out coming the out the same, same year. year. I know. Crazy. Um, so how did, how did that happen? I broke in um, to movies. Well, basically... The short version is uh, I didn't know anyone in Hollywood, couldn't figure out how to make a path into writing. So I was going to become a a cop in Michigan. I was going to become a a homicide detective. I was going to get a degree in police administration, go to Michigan State University. And then my high school teachers said, oh, oh my God, you can't do that. You got to write, which I'd wanted to, but I had a single mom. We didn't have 
much money. And they kind of staged an intervention. They came over to our house for coffee and said, you, they suggested I apply to USC screenwriting. Um, and my mom said, we cannot afford it. And they said, just, we think he can get in and, and just get scholarships and whatnot. And so we had enough money with financial aid for me to attend one semester. Wow. And, and I got in and uh, th- this was an undergraduate degree. And then every semester was sketchy as like whether or not I could keep going. So I worked two or three jobs and I would apply for all these grants. But I'm, I made it and I, I busted my ass. And I, in the program, you were meant to come out with one screenplay. And I, I had three by the time I was done. And in my last semester, I thought, oh, I'm going to get an agent. And I remember reading about this particular agent who'd become an agent, I, I believe at ICM at the time, which is one of the, uh, I think they're defunct now, right? No, so, no longer with yeah, us. Yeah, they've been absorbed by one of the <laughs> yes. other mega agencies. Yeah. And uh, I read about this guy who had, um, he'd gone through Berkeley in like two and a half years and become an agent at 23. And I thought, oh, that guy seems like a real you know, firecracker. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have that guy be my agent. So I started cold calling his office from my dorm room. And I called, I think it, it was 42 <laughs> business days. Uh, both, I would say, hey, this is David Goyer. Uh, you know, uh, I need to talk to so-and-so. Finally, on like the 42nd day, I, it became a joke. I was just, but I was in my dorm room. I was like, what, what do I yeah. care? Yeah. And finally, the assistant, he jumps on the line and says, who the fuck are you and why you keep calling me? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I realized I forgot like 30 seconds. And I said, listen, I'm about to graduate USC film school. I'm going to be a giant filmmaker one day. You should represent me. You're going to kick yourself if you don't. And there was this pause and he said, okay, send me your script. But don't fucking call me every day. It's going to take me a while. To <laughs> so, so, and, and by the way, I had, I, I had nothing to lose. I was in my dorm room, yeah, like in my lose. underwear. And so, and, uh, I waited two weeks and then I started calling him again. And I, for another couple of weeks, finally he answered and he said, I'm going to sign you. And so I got an agent before I even graduated. Wow. And, but what was interesting is he said, and your script's really good, but I decided I was going to sign you even before I read it. And I said, why? And he's because you were so damn tenacious that mm. I just thought this kid's going to succeed. And, and then I graduated and I got a job as a, production assistant on a studio and it was my job to deliver mail around the lot and also snacks like I had like a like a hand <laughs> cart with yeah. you know uh and and I did that for about um four months and at the time he said I thought I was going to write funny sort of like American werewolf in London movies yeah and he said can you write I think Die Hard had just come out and he said, can you write an action movie? And so I studied some and I wrote one. And after four months, he said, I think I can, I can sell this. And like two days later, he sold it. Uh, wow. and, and he sold it to MGM and, and he sold it for more than 10 times what I was making as my yearly salary as a mm-hmm. PA. And he sold it to Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who had just come out with Cyborg and wow. I hadn't watched any movies in there. I remember this, he called me at work, this is before cell phones. And, and he said, Jean-Claude Van Damme wants to buy your script. Do you know who he is? No. And, and, and I could hear, I could hear him 
like unfolding the newspaper and he said there's a there's a there's a show at like 145 at the Chinese theater on Hollywood Boulevard go see it and meet with him at like five o'clock so I feign sickness I saw this wow. movie which is terrible then I then I met with not, him not his yeah. best no. not his best yeah, yeah, yeah. and I met with him but he was you know say what you will about him but he was effusive and he said you're a great writer and I remember I can't do a Belgian accent but he said I will yeah. he said Hollywood will try to destroy you but I will protect you like an eagle uh, <laughs> and, 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 he, and they made the movie and like like wow. two months later I was on the set so I was I was 22 and it was four or wow. five months out of out of school and then I kicked around and did some other jean claude movies for a while and then eventually uh, I got the gig to write Blade and that was the first time that I Mike DeLuca who was running New Line at the time and now is running Warner Brothers j- just let me write what I want to write Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and just didn't give me notes. And so, you know, I guess the proof is in the pudding with that. Another yeah, long, long answer. I, well, I was going to... That's a great one. One great answer. And I love yeah. that Jean-Claude Van Damme story. That makes me very happy as someone who is a huge fan of his spin kick. <laughs> protect you yeah. like an eagle. And, I mean, that's the most Jean-Claude Van Damme thing I've ever heard. Yeah. He's going to protect yeah. you like an eagle. Okay, so let's talk about Blade. Because A, it's like a fucking masterpiece. Yeah. And B, that essentially establishes the superhero genre for the next, you know, still now. It's still going on. Because yeah, people, people and, cite X-Men, the first one, which was great, but Blade yeah, came yeah, but first. It's Blade. Yeah. And it's Blade Marvel Studios, first. you know, you have this. So could you talk a little bit about Blade? Like, was that a character you'd come across before? Did you go back and read the black and white stuff? Or was this just a story? I mean, it's such a cool concept that you were just like, I immediately know what this is going to be. Well, I was a giant comic book geek anyway, so there was almost no Marvel or DC character that I wasn't familiar mm-hmm. with. So I had read all of Tomb of Dracula, and I'd read the black and white um, yeah. sort of more I mature magazine stuff. stories. And um, I was, so I was completely familiar with, with Blade, and I had heard that New Line wanted to make... Um, they had had some success with House Party and Deep Cover, like so-called urban movies, uh, and... I'd heard that they wanted to do a black superhero. And so they were thinking Marvel. And at the time it was Luke Cage, it was Blade Mm -hmm. or it was Black Panther. And I thought Blade could potentially be made for a price because it was a horror film, you know, an action horror film. And I was also really, I was watching a lot of um, Hong Kong action films uh, yeah. at the time, you know, way before they became in vogue. And so yeah. I had this yeah, cra- yeah. yeah, crazy idea, like I, movies like Bride with the White Hair and stuff like that. Um, I had this uh, crazy idea to, to fuse like Hong Kong action films with, you know, vampire movies with, with, it was just like, I don't know why I came up with it. And I pitched it and I, and I pitched a trilogy. I remember to DeLuke and I said, I'm going to pitch you the Star Wars of vampire films. <laughs> and he said they and they at the time they wanted to make it for six to eight million dollars and they like yeah. the pitch and he just let me write so the movie that got made is largely the one that i wrote but the funny thing is he said six to eight million and my first draft came in and they budgeted it, it and it came in at 45 million <laughs> and it was r-rated and the crazy thing is deluca who took these huge risks at the time just said screw it we're going to make it. And then eventually the budget even escalated to 55 million and people were 
it, Spawn had come out and people were just mm-hmm. making fun of the movie before it came out. I remember mm-hmm. reading early chatter, even on like Ain't It Cool way back when, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, but I knew what we'd made and I knew we had the goods and it was amazing being in those first couple of um, audience previews because you could just feel the audience like, oh my God, this is something we've yeah, never yeah. seen before. Yeah. It was cool. Okay, sorry. I just need Jason. I know we we have a full. I need to know about the blood rave because it is like one of the most iconic sequences ever, and is now like constantly spoken about. It's memed, yeah, and it's it's memed. memed. And also, it's like you know the Batman. There's definitely like the they have the rave sequence there, and it's like definitely red and very themed. Could you just talk about that? Like, because did you know that that was going to become like such an iconic moment? Well, that I mean, look, that was in my pitch. Was wow. that opening? I mean, I pitched that scene in the old because I was trying to reinvent vampire movies uh, and mm-hmm. vampire stories, and 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 I just thought, what's the most decadent, you know, uh, thing I can possibly think of? You know, a kind of a vampire let them eat cake or something like that. <laughs> and and, and uh, so that was in the first pitch, and then you know, Steve Norrington did an incredible job shooting it it was a it was completely miserable we shot it in los angeles and we shot <laughs> yeah. it over the course of yeah. like i can't remember how many days but it was hot it was summer and the crew had to wear those sort of like white hazmat oh. suits you know like breaking bad like <laughs> clean suits yeah and it was all this fake blood and the floor was really sticky and it smelled awful <laughs> uh I, I mean just awful and you couldn't walk around without your like your feet sticking to things and and it was, I mean, it was a miserable sequence uh, to film. But, but I, I don't know. It's, it's look, we're talking about something that I wrote twenty, no, more than 20, 27 years ago. We're like, where did I come up with the idea? But I was just yeah. trying to come up with breaking down the conventions. I, I was trying. Look, don't get me wrong. I love Hammer House of Horror films, mm-hmm. but I was yeah, trying yeah. to come up with like of the course. anti, mm-hmm. you know, Hammer vampire story. Yeah. Yeah. And also tip into black exploitation and all of those things. It's it's crazy that it worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cuz we're sort of fusing so many different elements. So you're a writer for a number of years, increasingly success, successful writer. You become the go-to guy for adaptation, comic adaptation, IP stuff, as you noted. How do you then make the transition to director and showrunner? And how hard is that to do? Mm. Uh, good question. Well, at, at the time when I started to do it, it was very hard because I, I, I built up a head of steam as a screenwriter back in the days mm-hmm. when one could make a good living as a screenwriter, as opposed <laughs> yeah. to what's happening right now. Yeah. And, and I was a fast screenwriter, so I could write four feature scripts a year and I was yeah. making a really good living. And, um, I had had the fortunate, well, I would say with Blade and Dark City, those were the first times I'd worked with, you know, genuinely good directors. And I'd I'd worked with some not so good directors prior to that. And I'd seen one of the things that's hard as a screenwriter is you can have your name on a movie or a teleplay and uh, up to 30 percent of it could be rewritten by other people, but they mm. won't get credit. Their names won't appear, but you get the blame if they if they massively <laughs> altered. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, And and so I'd had this experience of just 
either being rewritten by people or, or worked with some mediocre or bad directors. And I, and I, I wanted to retain more control. So I wanted to start producing and then uh, eventually directing. And I thought, well, I can, I can at least be a mediocre director. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 you know, maybe at the beginning I was, I think I, I got better, uh, at it. Uh, and it's, it's the whole 10,000 hour thing, but it's hard because my agents did not want me to do it. Uh, yeah. they were making money off of me and Dave, we got a good thing going. Yeah. Here. yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and people don't want to give a first time director a shot. So I, mm-hmm. I adapted a book called zigzag that, uh, I had a budget for $2.8 million and I, um, Wesley agreed to do a, a cameo. He, he worked on it for six days. He was like the anchor. And then I got some other people like Oliver Platt and Natasha Leone and John Leguizamo. And, um, I took, I worked in that movie for a year and I took what's called scale. So, mm. uh, I can't even remember what I made to write it. Something like $18,000 and to direct it 40,000. And 58,000 seems like a lot, but I was making far more than that as a writer. And my, my, my agents were not happy with me making the show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how much more complicated, because obviously you've been in this business now so long and seen so many changes. And now you've got productions on TV slash streaming that are essentially multi-episode movies. Mm. How did you, you know, it seems like a very daunting task to try and put all those tools together and say, now I'm going to manage a multi-episode, multi-season movie that takes place on, you know, a, one continent, but across the continent in multiple time zones at once. Um, you know, what what were the things that you encountered that you were like, well, I'm glad that I had been through these other experiences to let me know how to do this? Well, first of all, I mean... It is daunting. It is really hard. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not, there are times when I, I, you know, wish I could work on a show that just took place in one city that, you know, in one time <laughs> zone that didn't have yeah. a ton of visual effects or things like that. But I, it, but it was also kind of bit by bit by bit by bit over right. the course mm-hmm. of 20 years. So it was just building upon what I learned before. And, and I had you know, the first show that really made some waves was a show that I had uh, co-created called Flash Forward um, way back on ABC at the time. And I directed the first two episodes of that. And then I had another show on stars called Da Vinci's Demons, which was a little more ambitious. It's sort of each one was successfully a little more ambitious. And it's, it's just building upon, you know, look, you look at a lot of people a lot of filmmakers and, you know, Chris Nolan started out mm-hmm. with, you know, following, which is most people I haven't even seen or heard yeah. of. And, 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 and then, um, uh, why am I blanking on? Uh, Memento. Memento. Yeah. Then yeah. Memento and then Insomnia. And then, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. just, it just, he didn't start, I, he was incredibly talented, but he didn't start out with Inception. Yeah. 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 So with, Something that's also like you talk about ambition and you've already set up this kind of huge challenge for yourself. And then coming into the second season, you arguably switch everything up 
Yeah. And kind of go a hundred years in the future and change like hundred plus and change like a lot of the major cast. Could you talk about those kind of choices and challenges and how that adds to the ambition and the storytelling? Well, I, I, what I, when I pitched foundation to Apple, I said, this is going to be a crazy hybrid because it's, it's, it's going to be a cross between a serialized show and, and kind of a seasonal anthology. And mm. so I said, we're going to have like, you know, a complete story and they're going to be a, a handful of characters that are going to continue from season to season that are through the various trusts of science fiction are going to be effectively immortal. And, and then we're going to introduce new characters each season and they're going to have a complete story and then, you know, either succeed or die or whatnot, and then they won't come back. And I just, I couldn't really think of a show that had pursued that format before. Mm -mm. And I thought it would be an interesting way to kind of tackle some of the more anthological aspects of, of Foundation. And and I guess Apple was crazy enough to, to go for it, you know? <laughs> I mean, normally, normally when you pitch something that just like breaks all the conventional rules of storytelling or, or storytelling as it's known on streaming, you're like, oh, you're crazy, that'll never fly. And on top of it, be hugely expensive. But um, th there were some fans at Apple of Foundation um, mm. and, and, and that helped. And I, you know, at the time I, I created it with Josh Friedman who, um, left after the third episode or so, but you know, we spent a lot of time on that pitch and, and each of us had, you know, had a certain body of work that we'd mm. worked on prior to that, that I guess they, you know, bought our crazy pitch. You know, <laughs> I think that the, in terms of changing it up, I, I, I think on, on one hand, what we did with season two, you could say, you're crazy to have attempted that. Like, why not continue what you, you know, why, why are you just doing a refresh on everything? But, but people seem to have really, you know, gone nuts for it. And so I, I, I just felt like it would be boring if we repeated ourselves or boring if we just, yeah. I just wanted to try something really bold and challenging. And, and um, I'm kind of amazed at how well, season two has been received. I thought more people would be freaked out by the fact that we're just, we're just jumping forward 130 years and just introducing a whole slew of new characters. And even many of the characters that you know are, are you know, we're perceiving them in a different way. And I, I love how we just start with the first episode and we just plunk you in the middle of this black and white film, you know, with Harry Seldon. And we just say, you got to catch up, sorry. You know, um, I don't know. That excited me. And I, 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 I am amazed, though, that it didn't throw more people, I will say. Mm. That opening scene where uh, Harry is trying to knit his mind back together. Yeah. How much of that was written? How much of that is Jared just kind of going? About half. So mm -hmm. so we wrote some stuff. I will say this. It's, it's not all random. Well, I, cause you've seen this season, like some, some, <laughs> of, the, some of the stuff that he says loops back around and people mm. will go, Oh, <laughs> interesting. Um, Jared's a really smart, shrewd guy. And we talked about the themes of things that he could talk about. So he said everything that was scripted and then it mm. was just kind of an open mic letter rip stream mm. of consciousness. I mean, honestly, I would have gone on longer but um, 
those that stuff is also really expensive because whether mm-hmm. it's whether it's the black and white stuff where we're trying mm-hmm. to erase things or whether it's the stuff in the prime radiant itself where we're trying to erase crude reflections it's um but he's he, we used he, there were times when he said a bunch of stuff and he said oh you're not going to use that you're not going to use that you're not going to use that and we then ended up using a lot of it <laughs> of course and then you yeah. get that juxtaposition with that like incredible action sequence Oh my yeah. god! naked fighting the assassins, <laughs> and that's like a very different tone shift too. Could you talk uh-huh. a little bit about that? Because the action's so great. You know, I I loved juxtaposing those two scenes together though, because there's like one is as heady, kind of mm-hmm. art filmy, you know, THX eleven thirty eight as you can get, and then yeah. the other one is just <laughs> kind of a Game of Thrones action sequence. But I I again I wanted to challenge the audience and challenge people's expectations of what if they'd seen season one or even if they hadn't seen season one and they'd heard about it what kind of scenes we could take on in the show because i think there was some people had heard about it but maybe there was a barrier to entry because they thought it was like too highbrow or too heady or cerebral exactly exactly and it is still cerebral but but I thought it's a big tent and we can embody a bunch of scenes. And I'm excited with, you know, I don't know when this episode is going to drop, but uh, the episode two will drop uh, the 21st. Well, uh, yeah. And they, we also start to introduce some more elements and some more dry humor with, as of episode two and, and particularly with episode three. And once again, I'm excited for the audience to... You know, on the surface of it, it feels like it wouldn't work, but it does work. And mm-hmm. you realize it's also such foundation is so serious that it's yeah. good to have some characters that don't take psychohistory seriously or the Empire seriously. <laughs> it's yeah. good to have characters like that kind of in your quiver. Yeah. Well, uh, David, this has been a, such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank uh, you so much. My pleasure. And if I can do a tiny plug... Yes, please. Um, please. I've got a little website that I've I've neglected for a while, but I've uh, also because of the strike and stuff, davidescore.com. I'm I'm doing show notes as episodes drop, uh, and I'm also including kind of behind the scenes making of photos and things. And so if people want to log on to there and I'm going to put together a mailing list, they can get some more sort of fun behind the scenes details. And uh, that's all I got. Cool. That's awesome. Thanks again, David. My pleasure. Up next, Nerd Out. In today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why, a theory you're excited to share, or a quick question we can answer, Matt offers a thought on Indiana Jones. Matt begins with some kind words towards us. Thank you, Matt. I won't make everyone listen to them, but we appreciate you. (laughs) Matt says, with Indiana Jones back in the limelight, I wanted to share a realization I had during the last time I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark. Throughout the introductory sequence, walking through the Peruvian woods, encountering bats, double-crossing aids, outsmarting traps, shrugging off scary wildlife, even taking a gorgeous relic and surviving a collapsing tomb, many exclamation points. There is not so much as a hint of the legendary John Williams theme. It's only when Indy grabs the vine to swing into the water and escape his pursuers that we hear those trumpets blare out his motif. That got me reflecting on how the heart of Indy is truly the escape. He doesn't get to keep the Ark at the end of Raiders or the Shankara stones at the end of Temple of the Doom or the Grail at the end of the 
Crusade or the Skull at the End of Kingdom. I haven't seen Dial of Destiny yet, but I kind of hope it keeps to this tradition of Indy getting into something way over his hat and just making it out by the skin of his teeth because that's who Indiana Jones is. The ultimate fuck around and find out hero. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for indulging my observation, sending you all the love in this nerd's heart, Matt. Thank you, Matt. I think that's true. I think it's all about the escape. I think that's true. It's about the close calls. It is about that. I've been thinking about something we talked about during our conversation about Indy, and that's how in the final act of most of these movies, uh, the agency goes to a higher power, God, aliens, Mm -hmm. whatever, and it's actually not Indy kind of doing whatever the big thing is at the very end of the movie. And I was thinking about it, and I think— uh, you know, to Matt's point, not only is it about the escape, but what makes Indy the hero in these stories is the mm-hmm. fact that he has he is able to put uh, whatever the object and the power behind the object is in the correct framing. He understands like. I'm just a man. I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not going to fuck around with God. Like I'm not even going to inter. I'm not, a, I'm not going to mess with that. Right. Like he has that respect and all the other villains of our various pieces, mostly Nazis never do. Right. They mm-hmm. always want to say, well, I want to seize God's or an alien's power for myself. Indy never does that. And number two, uh, you know, kind of, Attaching this observation to Matt's observation, part of the reason it's about the escape for Indy is, think about it, he can only, he can only go for objects that he can carry out in a medium-sized duffel bag. That's it. <laughs> it has to fit in a satchel or <laughs> it else it's not happening to him. It's not, or it's not happening, folks. He's got to be able to tuck it into like a postman's bag and climb out. <laughs> So it's, it is often about the escape because he who's going to help him carry the thing out of there? Mm-hmm. How is he going to like? How is he going to get the ark like out of Tannis and out of the building? Like, I guess they were going to have a truck or something. But there was come on, there was no never going to happen. No, it was never going to happen. Thanks, Matt. If you have theories, passions, or quick questions you want to share, hit us up at xray at crooked Instructions in the show notes. A huge thanks to David S. Goyer for being so generous with his time this episode. Uh, And that's it for us this episode. Rosie, any plugs? Yes, I'm going to plug mutual aid. It's very hot out there. So on Saturday when I was leaving San Diego, I went to CVS. I bought $28 of water, which was like six big cases of water. And I just handed it out to all the folks who live in San Diego year round. If you were at San Diego, there are loads of great, mutual aid organizations there that you can donate to if you weren't able to be there and help out the folks when you were actually at the con because you were busy. There's a great one called We All We Got SD. That's their Instagram handle. Also, if you have a freezer that is big and you live in America, maybe because a lot of the freezers here are really big, put a case of water in your freezer. Then when you're driving around, if you see anyone just sitting out in the sun, you can just give them an icy bottle of water. Cold water saves people's lives in these heat waves. And if you can't, and don't have the time or aren't physically able, there's loads of great spaces, homey-made meals, community fridges. There's loads of different places that you can do it. But right now, it's really hot, and being outside is really dangerous. So cold water is a great thing to have in your fridge, or just throw some throw some cash to one of the mutual aid orgs in your area. Well said. 
Catch the next episode of X-Ray Vision Friday, July 28th for the finale of Secret Invasion. We'll be there. Yeah, Secret Invasion. It's the final. Finale, final episode. It's yeah. time. It's happened. You can yeah. you can watch full episodes of the podcast on YouTube and check out our Twitter at XRV Pod and our Discord to hang out with all those cool fans we're always talking about. Five star ratings, five star reviews. We need them. We got to have them. You got to give them to us. Here five, is five, one five. from Ash. It's the only podcast I prioritize listening to. Wow. If you care about any nerd stuff at all, this is the podcast for you. I've been a loyal listener since episode one, and I love the show so much. I even joined the Discord, something I'd never done before. Welcome, Ash. Yeah, thanks for joining us. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin and executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Video production by Delon Villanueva and Rachel Gajewski. Social media by Awa Okalati and Caroline Dunphy. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time. Bye. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.